He who saves one life saves the world entire. And the most important life to save is your own. After all, it's the place where you have the most power. So join shadow worker and trauma therapist Laura Giles each week on It's Not You, It's Me. We'll uncover what's in shadow and learn the things you need so you can heal yourself, grow yourself, know yourself, love yourself, be yourself, and share yourself. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, it's time to drop the self-sabotage and limiting beliefs. A healthy, abundant, connected life is an option. Choose it. Subscribe. And let's start manifesting it. If you are a self-help or personal growth fan, I know that you have heard of the problem of intergenerational trauma. It's a new buzzword that's flying around the therapy, coaching, and even spiritual communities. I'm hearing a lot of interesting things out there, so I wanted to share a bit to help you clear up some confusion today. And if this is something that you have questions about or struggle with, hopefully we can get you a little closer to letting it go today. Thanks for joining me. I'm Laura Giles. And as I say, I hear a lot of people proposing all sorts of remedies and cures for intergenerational trauma. But before we can even talk about that, let's first define what it is, because I know for at least some of you, that's a new idea. So intergenerational trauma is a pretty new idea in the field of trauma. Although the evidence for post-traumatic stress disorder has been around since forever, we didn't even have a formal label for that until 1981. And it was really controversial then. Since then, we've made a lot of progress in treating trauma and one of the newest nuances comes from psychiatry. I believe it started with observations of Holocaust survivors. There were obviously psychological things going on from surviving captivity, persecution, starvation, and emotional torture, but there were also changes in the blood and brain and on the molecular levels. Doctors were seeing anomalies in the children of survivors who didn't actually go through the concentration camps and were wondering why. It was as if the children were war survivors too. You see, we all have genes, but we also have proteins that turn genes off and on. And all kinds of things can be the switch that makes that happen. It can be something you eat, the environment, stress. And this is why identical twins aren't totally identical despite having the same genes. They don't have the same environment, diet, or lifestyle. Anyway, a trauma response is a survival response. It's your body trying to keep you alive. And nature wants us to survive and produce offspring. If you're a pregnant woman under stressful circumstances, you may just pass along the epigenetic mix that gives your baby the best chance of survival and in a stress-filled environment. And that could be a sky-high sensitivity and reactivity. If you're super alert, you're going to react more quickly to danger, increase your chance of survival, right? But the Holocaust was over. There was no threat to life, and here are these children with elevated cortisol levels. That impacts everything from mood, inflammation, heart functioning, digestion, and the ability to conceive, you know, weight, and the ability to have healthy relationships, so everything. So these kids start off behind the eight ball, and then they have kids who also have this issue, and then they have kids, and it just goes on and on and on. 
There are different studies on different animals, and humans are animals. And the impact of epigenetics can go on for four to seven generations, depending upon what caused the change. I don't know the specifics, but let's say that exposure to famine could affect the next seven generations, and exposure to emotional trauma could last for four. I don't know the number exactly, but you get the gist of the idea. I can personally vouch for this because I'm an aspiring homesteader. I have goats. And one year we had a drought. There was no rain and the hay was no good. And when our goats kitted, they all had birthing problems. One mama's baby died in utero, all of them. And they all had hard deliveries that year. And another one had a stillborn. And that was really unusual. Typically our goats were very healthy. So to have them all impacted by the famine, you can pretty much say, oh, well, I guess you can't totally say that it was the famine, but you know, that's a good guess. So I ended up keeping one of the female kids and she was never hardy. Even though the next year's hay was fine, she just never caught up. So environmental conditions definitely make a difference and the impact can last for more than just one lifetime if they have kids. But when we're talking about intergenerational trauma for people, we're typically either talking about historical trauma that happens in a group of people like war refugees or survivors of 9-11 and in that, I include all Americans, but a subset of that would be those who were directly impacted by the attacks. Or we're, we could be talking about personal trauma that happens in families. So if your mother was an alcoholic, she's not the only person impacted by her addiction. Her children are too. Not just because they came from her body and lived in her womb, but because of the chaotic environment created by the addiction as the children were growing up. It's her partner is part of that too. So intergenerational trauma is about trauma that impacts a family that basically isn't healed. And the tricky thing about this is that a lot of people think that some things aren't traumatic. If we're going by the diagnostic and statistical manual that defines dis-ease, they'd be right because in order to have post-traumatic stress disorder, you have to have faced a life-threatening ordeal. And if you're six years old driving past a car accident where people were all bloodied, You might not have been in any danger at all, but your nervous system is still off the charts. And if you're afraid of dentist and your dentist isn't the gentlest creature, he may not have done a single thing wrong. And you may never have been close to death, but your nervous system is still raging like you were jumping out of an airplane. So another thing is that some people have lifestyles that are so chaotic that it just seems normal to them. It's normal to have drive-by shootings or a dad who comes in and yells when he gets home at night. It's so commonplace that it doesn't even attract any notice, but your nervous system is racing. I have a lot of clients who don't know what calm is. Their baseline is when their nervous system is screaming. So on a scale of zero to 10, their baseline is a nine, and they're almost always in a state of being maxed out. So if you grew up with food insecurity or you weren't sure where you're gonna be living, You may have been safe and dry and ate most of the time, but living in uncertainty day in and day out turns your nervous system on high alert to keep you alive. It's adaptive in that way, but it comes at a really high cost to the rest of your life. So to me, anything that gets you going like that is trauma. You don't have to be near death to have your nervous system stuck on high alert. And I can tell you that the severity of the trauma response and the prevalence in the general population has gone up tremendously during the time that I've been working in mental health. It used to be that you might never have a client suicide during your entire career in mental health. 
in private practice, but now it's rare to find anyone who hasn't had that situation. People are over-medicated and ineffectively treated because helpers are not adequately trained. And to fill that gap, people are looking to alternative treatments that are also not really effective in helping them. So one common one is God or prayer. And I'm a fan of prayer. I believe in the power of prayer, but it doesn't work reliably. You have no control over prayer. You surrender and trust. And I've seen this work for a few people, but the vast majority of people aren't helped. So my suggestion on that one is to pray if you're a believer and help yourself, but I wouldn't let that be the only egg in your basket. Another alternative treatment is plant medicine. I'm talking about the pseudo-spiritual ones and also the ones sanctioned by the government and follow prescribed protocols. The problem I have with the pseudo-spiritual ones is that as a daughter of an indigenous person myself, I have a hard time with people who are not reared with a cultural understanding um, conducting a spiritual ceremony while appealing to gods that they don't know and don't have a relationship with, the plant's not native to the culture, and they have no relationship with the land. So plant medicine is all about relationships, and there isn't one. It's really the same mentality as taking a pill. It stripped all the cultural meaning and all that makes it sacred from the, the whole process. And in most cases, the facilitator isn't a member of the community and doesn't know the people in the ceremony. Again, so there's no relationship. And the most precious thing that you do as a facilitator is care for the people who have entrusted themselves to you. I don't know how you do that when you don't know who the people are and what they're bringing to the table. I don't know how you do that when there's 40 people in a ceremony. Not to mention that there's no aftercare or support. It's like now you see them, now you don't. I'm not saying that people haven't been helped. I'm saying that, you know, big picture, this is what I'm seeing. But that's my perspective, so let's bypass that and get on to the effectiveness, okay? So I've had lots of clients who have done this in different settings. Most have had an unforgettable experience, so totally give them that. But in most cases, I can't say that I've seen any lasting changes because of that. So I've had clients do ketamine under a doctor's supervision. And if ketamine is going to work for you, it's going to kick in fast. Uh, it did create dramatic and fast changes for three people that I know of, but not in one. But the one who didn't get good results, he didn't follow the prescribed protocol either. So that could have been all on him. The other three had to quit because the price tag is just so high. And they couldn't just maintain it. And once they did quit, they went back to their previous level of functioning. So it was a very expensive way to treat symptoms for a very short period of time. I have a client who did ayahuasca, who was worse from the experience. Honestly though, he never should have been permitted to do it in any way because he was not an ideal candidate. So that happens. Um, I've had two clients who developed hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. I think that's what's called HPBD, which is where you get continuously, uh, where you continuously hallucinate. And they can be brief flashbacks, or they could be, like it's called persistent, they could be persistent. So the person doesn't know that they're, um, I mean, the person does know that they're hallucinating and can function despite having the hallucinations, but it's still just kind of, you know, it's disruptive. And I've had one client who got amotivational syndrome after doing psychedelics. Amotivational syndrome is apathy or just a lack of interest in living. And that doesn't go away. And it was like a, a flip and a switch. She was different day one to day two. 
and never went back. So a lot of people think that hallucinogens are safe and natural, and in most cases they are, but not totally. What I see mostly though, is that a person gets a lot of insight, feels great for about a month, then they need to do it again and again and again, and nothing really gets better. It's just spiritual bypass and kicking the can down the road. Now my clients have also tried working with helpers who don't use drugs. They offer chakra balancing, Reiki, meditations, and things like this. And I can't speak about any specific practice or practitioner because they're all different. You know, you can have a really good practice and a very bad practitioner, or you can have a really mediocre practice and a really good practitioner. You know, it makes the, the details matter. And I've seen one or two benefit tremendously from these types of things quickly and permanently, but most of them don't. I've had a client who wanted to go all natural and heal with food. I'm a great believer in food, sometimes supplements, depending on what they are and the fit for the person. And lifestyle changes are great for healing. Love that. And while this helps tremendously with symptom reduction, I've not seen anyone gain complete wellness in this way. And this is why. There's a huge difference between feeling better and healing. When I worked as a rape crisis counselor, my clients were often suicidal. Something horrible had happened, their world was turned upside down and they couldn't see a way out. You can see that, right? But don't ask me how, but I've often turned that situation around and at the end of our time together, they'd be laughing and talking about shopping or something and were definitely not suicidal. So in other words, they felt better. Didn't do a single thing for the underlying trauma, but I got them to a place where they weren't thinking about dying. Coping is not healing. Coping gets you from moment to moment. Coping gives you breathing room so you can do the deep work of healing. And if you don't know what trauma looks like, you may not know that you're suffering from it. If the trauma didn't happen directly to you, you may not realize it's impacting you. So let me give you a quick list of things that can create a trauma response that you might not be aware of, okay? So these are things that my clients have endured but didn't think to talk about because they dismissed them as commonplace or no big deal. So the first one is car accidents. This could be where you were in one or you witnessed one. Super common. If you have a fear of driving, driving on bridges, you tense up when someone is beside you or behind you when you're driving, you've got some unresolved stuff you gotta let go of. This happened to me after skidding on some ice so it doesn't have to be a big fender bender where you roll the car or smash a windshield. Another one is medical treatment. The modern medical system is particularly brutal and unkind. Any type of interaction with medical comp- professionals can be traumatic. From getting your blood drawn to just doing an intake where you talk about your symptoms to a perfect stranger while in earshot of all kinds of other people. It's dehumanizing, potentially humiliating, and cold. We've all either heard about someone or have been that someone in a hospital gown that's too small and open in all the wrong places and been exposed, right? You get it. Medical treatment is the worst. Another one is emotional incest. And this is where your parent has really poor boundaries and uses you as their confidant. They tell you things about their finances, love life or work life, and then praise you for how mature you are. This is not normal or healthy. It robs children of their childhood and does a real number on their emotional stability. Another one is living with an addict, and this could be you. So addiction is very destabilizing, and I'm talking about addiction to anything. So alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, eating, exercise, it doesn't matter. 
The preoccupation with something else brings that person's sense of being out of control into the whole family. Death's another one. Death is natural. But if you're not prepared, not supported, and don't have closure, you can have a lot of negative impacts that last a long time. If you don't have a culture of talking about death and acknowledging it, this can make it harder. You know, as Americans, we don't do hard things. We ignore them like they're not happening. We outsource them. The more in touch with life you are, the less scary it is. Another one's helicopter parenting. A lot of my clients have helicopter parents. They don't know what's wrong. They report having a great childhood with loving parents who provided well for them, and they don't see the controlling and critical nature of the parents as anything but love. I had one client who had a hard time buying her own clothes. She lacked the confidence because what if her mom didn't like her choices? She just froze like a deer in the headlights at the thought of it. Not to mention that she doesn't even know what she liked because she never got to make her own decisions. So no, there was no physical abuse, but stifling, controlling, or criticizing a child is very damaging. Another one is court. Most people have been to court for something. It's a normal thing that people do. It isn't often seen as traumatizing, but when all your power is gone and your fate is being left up to a judge who doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, it can be traumatizing, especially if, you've been, if you have been in front of him before and he's not heard you and has made decisions for you that went against your will. Another one is a strict religious upbringing. Religion's another thing that we think of as common and a good and stabilizing thing. When it's strict and controlling, it can choke the life out of us. We call that religious trauma syndrome, but it's essentially PTSD caused by a fear of hell, fear of disapproval, and being kicked out of the clan. Another commonly overlooked cause is growing up with a sick parent, and this can be a physical or an emotional sickness. This is because the parent is not available, so it can feel like abandonment. The parent isn't able to meet your needs, so there's an element of neglect. If you had to care for this person in any way, there could also be the stress of too much responsibility before you were able to really handle it. So in addition to the obvious things like rape, child abuse, sexual abuse, and domestic violence, being a war survivor or soldier, and being the victim of a crime, you have a whole bunch of other everyday things that can create intergenerational trauma. If you add historical stuff to it, like genocide, which has happened to Native Americans, Bosnians, Jews, Cambodians, Guatemalans, Serbians, Greeks, Armenians, the Igbo people of Nigeria, Kurds, and Vietnamese all in the 20th century, oppression, which has included women from every culture since the rise of patriarchy, and slavery, we all have quite a heavy burden to bear, don't we? Not everyone who goes through something gets traumatized. Some people are resilient and can bounce back. And some people appear to have bounced back because they're great at compartmentalizing. But those are the ones who tend to be the hardest to help. First, because they aren't suffering, so they don't come in for treatment. Second, because they're so good at hiding their symptoms and distress that it's hard to get at it. But let's look at the most common signs of hidden emotional trauma to help you know if it's impacting you. The first two are anxiety and depression. All of my clients have one or both of those. And when you have both, that's a big giant red flag for PTSD. 
Anxiety is a nervous system on high alert. Depression is a nervous system that's sluggish. So these are two opposite states that shouldn't be happening at the same time. If it's going on for any length of time, you probably have PTSD. Other symptoms are insomnia, shame, anger, fear, hypervigilance. Perfectionism is a huge one. Procrastination, inability to achieve goals, a lack of empathy, self-doubt, feeling unworthy, feeling like an imposter, self-harming behaviors like cutting, suicidal thoughts, chronic pain or illness, substance abuse, and ADD or ADHD. In fact, I'm not sure that ADD and ADHD are real things. If they are, then I'm certain that a high percentage of people with ADD and ADHD also have a trauma history. Think about what I said about the body wanting to protect itself. One of the ways that it does that is by scanning for danger. What is the brain doing with ADD? It's jumping from one thing to another and paying attention to everything so you can't focus on any one thing. So how many people don't have something on that list? Not many, right? <laughs> now, how many people have a bunch of things on that list? The more that you have, the more likely that the root of your issue is emotional. Well, in my business, it's always emotional. So emotion drives the bus. When your emotions are flowing, acknowledged and manageable, life's happy. Your emotions don't have to all be happy. We need some challenges to keep things interesting, but if your skills are up to the task, it makes life fun and gives us meaning and it doesn't capsize us. So here we are. We got some personal baggage and some intergenerational ancestral baggage. And trust me, this is everybody, some of a little, some of a lot, but we've been riding this merry-go-round and sweeping things under the rug and treating symptoms in the West for decades or even centuries. So there's a lot of unresolved stuff hiding in the basement. And if counseling, Reiki, and meditation don't work, what does? Well, there's no free lunch, and I don't know of a solution that works reliably that doesn't include doing your own work. That means if you don't have the basic life skills, so things like knowing how to take care of yourself, manage your emotions, and deal with everyday ups and downs of life without becoming stressed out or needing to escape into overactivity, alcohol, or some substance, sex, or whatever your escape hatch of choices, then you have to learn how to do that. If you've had PTSD since childhood, chances are that you are too busy surviving to figure that stuff out. If you don't know who you are, you have to learn that. Life's about showing up and being you. And if you're hiding behind people pleasing or living someone else's expectations of what your life should look like, you're not here. You may be surprised how many grown folks are in this boat. Like I said, nature helps us to survive. Fawning, which is another way of saying people-pleasing, is a trauma response too. It's about trying to stay safe by being agreeable. We do what we learn. If that's working and it's a risk to be myself, I'm probably going to keep doing what's worked in the past so I can be safe, unless I have a compelling reason to change. If you don't know how to have great relationships, you want to learn that. Why? because that's what it's all about. There really isn't any point to conquering the highest mountain if at the end of it, you're all alone. We belong to each other. So we need to learn how to belong. These are some things that create resilience that help us to get through the tough times without being traumatized by them. And then you have to do the work of healing the trauma. 
You've got to feel your feelings, tell your truth, and let everything go. You can't hold on to resentment, withhold love, and hang on to old stories and programs like I wasn't loved enough. I worked with someone once who, every time I knocked down an emotional block, instead of letting it go, she'd use her memories and her emotions as justification for why the block was valid. So for example, if we came upon a memory where her mother was calling her name, she'd say, see, that's why we don't get along today. Or if the memory of her mother uh, intentionally embarrassing her in front of her friends, she'd say, she always hated me and couldn't stand it if I had attention. That's like me offering you a gift of freedom and you saying, no, thank you. Ultimately, we're holding all the reins to our own freedom. We can use them to bind us or we can let go of them and be free. It's up to us. And when I explained that to this client, she said, oh my God, are you serious? That's not what I want at all. So she stopped searching for that validation of why she was wronged and just let the energy move through her. She let herself cry, feel the loss, the pain, and the missed opportunities. And within a few minutes, all that emotional releasing was done. That was all there was to it. She had more freedom to move forward. This helped her with her limitations around money and relationships. She kept attracting people who didn't see her and didn't respect her. And that ended after we did that little bit of work together. You might think that people who say that they want healing would be wide open and up for everything. But blocking the healing is common enough that it's not unusual. Some clients are very skilled about having other crises they need to deal with, so we never really get to the real issue. Some will shut down. There's a lot of ways to hold on to it and not go there, but that won't lead to healing. What's in has to come out. And when it does, it's freeing. If there's something in your life that you have the skills and resources to handle, but don't, you can bet there's a trauma behind it. Or if you act as something with a bigger response than it objectively called for, there's trauma behind that. So if I say I wanna start working out and I don't, there's a block there. Doesn't have to be something dramatic, like I'm a shut-in and I can't go outside, or I'm a hoarder. Little things could be just as limiting as big obvious things. If I say boo and you curse me out, that's more than the situation calls for. We say things are in shadow, but they really aren't. We just aren't paying attention to the right things. Healing is not a one and done kind of thing. We have our baggage and our intergenerational stuff. And while some people say that you can never heal from it, you can only deal with it, I don't agree. I see people break these chains every day, link by link. Even strong, old wounds can heal. I worked with a gal who had a lifetime of death by paper cuts. I don't really know how she functioned, honestly. It was like getting from one panic attack to the next. She really needed an emotional support human to get through the day because the day-to-day tasks of living were just so hard. The girl wanted it though, and she brought a lot of determination to the table and turned her life around in, I don't know, like maybe four or five months. She tried everything I suggested, everything I asked her to do. She gutted through, even though it was hard. And some of it she didn't even really believe in, but she's like, I'm gonna give it a chance. And she knew she would survive it and trusted me to see her through. And we got to the other side and she's thriving now, four to five months later. So no panic attacks, her relationships are better, emotions are manageable. She can talk to people without feeling attacked, getting defensive or becoming angry. She doesn't have any meltdowns. She's really a whole different person. 
And really that's why I do this work. It's so important. As a society, we cannot kick the can down the road for decades and centuries and not have a huge bill to pay at the end of the road. And that bill is coming due. So it's up to us to clean up the things that we've created and the generations before us for the generations after us. And one last thing. I probably shouldn't have left this to the last, but I have heard people say that some things can't be healed. I've not seen this to be true. I have worked with clients who others call treatment resistance since day one. And there's no such thing as a treatment resistant client. They're only unskilled helpers. Anyone who wants to help, who wants the help and sticks with it can change. The power lies in you and nowhere else. The facilitator is just that. So don't give up on the life that you want because it can be yours. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to leave a legacy of sex trafficking, school shootings, horror films so graphic that the audience vomits, race riots and terrorism to the next generation. I think we all have a part to play in creating a world that we live in. And the very least we can do is to clean up our own mess. Because here's the thing. As you clean up your own mess, you clean up the junk that was passed down to us too. And that does a tremendous amount of good for the whole. So nobody's keeping score where it came from. It doesn't matter that it started with these people or this religion or that race. All that matters is that it's cleaned up. If you want a preview of the work that I do to help so that you can help yourself, I have a free group session once a month. I'll place the link in the show notes so that you can RSVP if you're interested in that. And if you want a private breakthrough session with me, just email me. And if you want to do the work of rebuilding the strong foundation so you can sustain your gains, check out my online community at letitgonow.org where you'll get lots of experiences and support for the journey to health and balance. Thanks for being here, guys. I'm Laura Giles, and I will see you next week. Ciao. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help the podcast thrive, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Laura Giles, you can follow her on all her socials at Laura Giles 804. See you next time.